Does the story work? That's the question, isn't it? Welcome to the StoryGrid showrunner podcast dedicated to answering this question by using the StoryGrid method developed by Sean Coyne. Every season, Randall, Melanie and I will analyse a hit TV series to figure out what works or doesn't work and why. Now in 2020, we're focusing on action and thriller stories. So each month we'll be releasing two podcast episodes. First, we'll discuss the expectations of the show from seeing the trailer and reading the series descriptions. And in the second show, we'll be going through the editor's six core questions to find out if the story worked. In our last show, we looked at the trailer of the Netflix show, You. Uh, Here's a quick reminder, please watch the TV series, You, before you listen to the following episode because we'll be giving away spoilers, but we'll also be talking about the global story. And to be honest, it's just a lot more valuable for you if you know what we're talking about, because we reference it a lot. Now, let's get on with the show. Right, to start with, um, here are our initial observations of season one of you. Uh, Mel, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, so what I really liked about this story, about this TV series, is that the villain is the hero of his own story. And this was greatly done um, when we get into the mind of the psychopath, especially through the first-person narrative, seeing how he leaves red herrings for whoever is trying to get him and start seeing the good guys as his antagonists by wanting him to succeed at the same time. What do you think, Peru? Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with you. I think the thing that strikes me is that it's filled with innovations. We've got that wonderful combination of the love genre mixed with the thriller, and it reminds me a lot of Killing Eve. We're pulled along by two genres. Randall, what did you think? Uh, So I thought it was... Great. I thought it was a great series, a uh, lot better than, uh, put together than the uh, last two that we reviewed, not Eve, but the other two. Also, uh, I'm just relating this to the human trafficking podcast I've been doing, which where I asked the question to the people that are human trafficked, when they, when they get led into that life, what's the difference between a creepy guy and a guy that's just a nice guy doing good things for you, you know, and how, how where's that line? And I think this this show you really helps to fi- helps us figure out where, when it goes overboard like that. So I, yeah. I really liked it. I, I, I like the com- the combined combination of the love story, the perfect love story, or not perfect love story, and the thriller the behind the scenes and what he's willing to do for her for her sake, supposedly. Uh, <laughs> though, though I don't think the ending was for her for her sake. Oh man, what a twisted guy! Yeah, thank you, not you, him. <laughs> um, <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you, Randall. So now we turn to the first question, the editor's core questions, which is beginning hook, middle build and ending payoff. So I'll kick us off with the beginning hook. The beginning hook, so the first third of the story is about Joe. Uh, He's a lonely bookstore manager. He notices Guinevere Beck. Awesome name. I do love her name. It's a great (laughs) name. Uh, He notices notices her. And at first you think it's quite romantic, the way he's looking at her. And then you realize actually... He needs to know everything about her. He starts to stalk her. He finds out she's in a relationship with a player. And he believes that she has friends that aren't good for her. And so he decides to save her from her unhappy life, her bad relationship, from the decisions she makes. Because he thinks he's the only one that can make her happy. He kills her ex-boyfriend and uses his charm to finally convince her to fall for him. Go ahead, Randall. So uh, I, I really I like this beginning. I mean, he saves her life in the train station, which is totally by accident. Uh, you know, she she's drunk. She drops the phone, and he, just because he's following her, he ends up saving her, which she would be dead otherwise, right? It almost leads the audience to forgive 
almost forgive a lot of the stuff he does in the future because in reality, she'd be dead if he hadn't saved her. So it's, there's a, there's all, there's a lot of forgiveness uh, that the audience, I mean, not of course in the end when, when, when the, uh, when he kills her and everything, but in the beginning, he's doing all this obsessive stuff and it led to her, him saving her life that, that, that was, you know, wouldn't have happened otherwise. I keep saying that, but it's true. No, 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 it's a good point. I mean, it's interesting. What else does he do in this series that makes him seem like a decent man? Everything he does for, for Paco, right. for the yeah. little guy. Yeah. yeah. Although, did he, ha did he have to kill Ron, Ron in order to... I think guy? he did. I think he did, personally. Ron could seemed he, a pretty bad guy. He, I mean, he could have just injured him. I'm just thinking of, like, questionable... He knows it from when you watch season two, then you know from his past that yeah. he has witnessed those guys by being a kid himself and his mother is doing the same mistake over and over again. So he knows there's no other way out than to kill this guy. And you know, Paco yeah. thought the same thing because Paco, you know, th now he's now, now uh, Joe's his hero. He even, he even disses uh, Beck at the end to protect. Oh God. So. Yeah. That's, that's so harrowing, but you're right. It's a really good point. It, within the beginning hook, he tries to charm her. And actually in the end, it's by chance that he, happens to save her because he's stalking her. It's a very compelling beginning hook. One of the things I was reading a couple of reviews and I completely agree with them is because they were, they were written by women and they're like, if nothing else, this series makes you want to pause the show and put security on your phone, on your computer, on your laptop and your tablet, everything. Yeah, and and get some curtains for your windows. Get some curtains <laughs> for your huge windows that you're having sex and masturbating <laughs> to the world in front of. <laughs> so, <laughs> but so there was a little bit of stuff that's like, first of all, and also, I don't know if you, well, you know about New York rule. Uh, there's, they both, they all have really huge places for in living in New York and making not very much money. Actually, that's really true because Beck is, is totally broke. How on earth she affords that? <laughs> I have no idea. I think it's with her study um, with this funding that she gets. Yeah, but it doesn't pay that much. Those are like those are like five hundred thousand dollar apartments. It may be more. They're huge. Yeah, they're probably like five thousand dollar apartments as well per month. Yeah, no, all all great points. And yeah, you're right. Lessons learned. Uh, don't date stalkers and don't leave your windows. And put security on your Facebook and, and don't don't put security on all your phones and stuff like that. All yeah, right. Just delete social media. <laughs> yeah, that note that line that he says when he first starts the stalker and he says all her profiles set to public. She's looking for attention. Well, I'm obliged to watch. I'm obliged I'm obliging you. And I was like, ooh, creepy. There's actually some really good quotes that I like in there. I mean, he's, he, tell, he's, he, he says, uh, I'm not an option. I'm the chosen one. I'm not a maybe. I am the one. And, and then maybe you just need someone to save you. I'll help you get the life you deserve. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no. Some really good quotes in there. Uh, I'll take us on through the middle build. So after killing Beck's old boyfriend, uh, Benji, Joe and Beck begin dating. The relations continue assaulted by, you know, obstacles and secrets. And a lot of those come from Peach and uh, then her father, who's they have a kind of a uh, weird relationship with Beck's father and Beck. He likes to dress like uh, captain, I guess, or something very bizarre. And, and then basically his biggest obstacle turns out to be Peach. And he actually tries to kill her once, 
doesn't succeed. And then Peach takes, tries to commit suicide or maybe she doesn't. And she's just trying to get in the way. And ultimately he discovers that she has tickets to Paris and she's going to take Beck away from him. So he decides to stock them in their uh, nice vacation house and ends up killing Peach. And that's kind of like the end of the middle build, I guess. What do you guys think? Yeah. Yeah. I think that it's interesting that he's faced with a similar crisis in the middle build to the beginning hook, which is, do I sacrifice the way he sees it is do I sacrifice myself for my love and kill this person or do I let them become an obstacle to me? And he is, he perceives threat in everything and therefore for him, there's no choice but to commit murder. But we have seen how he kills peach. Like, because um, it was actually, you can say um, or argue it's in self-defense and he was fearing for his life. She she was feeling threatened by she him. She was obsessed she, with Beck as well. It was kind of creepy how she was obsessed. She could have turned out to be another Joe. lesser true. Joe. It's true. It's true. We didn't see we didn't we didn't know what else she was hiding. We haven't seen her capable of murder. But oh. she's yeah, insane, like taking her own with her suicide attempts. But Just compare to get that. the intention of. But you compare that to killing Benji and hiding his body, uh, <laughs> trying to dis- dissolve him. That's a different level of crime. Peach does <laughs> it, but Peach is rich, right? So she does. She, if if she was poor, she might resort to this. But because she's rich, she has other levers that she can turn. Right? She can she can make people's life miserable through the lawyers. She can hire investigators. She can do all this stuff. And she's done stuff like you get the feeling that she's done stuff like this before in her past. She's just she in my in my opinion, she's just as evil as Joe, but but she does it in a different way. Just look at this book party, like where, where she set up back to meet this one guy. But life and death, if we if we go back to that Maslow's yeah. hierarchy of need and the threat she poses at the bottom, her she is more she is less of a risk to Beck's life. Than Joe is. I don't think. I don't think Peaches would have ever killed. Well, I don't think. But you can manipulate someone into killing themselves, because if Peach, uh, if Beck goes on feeling like she's not worth anything, and Peach betrayed her by introducing her to this one guy, then she can like get to the stage of killing herself, doing committing suicide. That's another way of like. I, I take that. I, I see what you mean. She's definitely dangerous. I don't equate her to Joe. Joe scares me more. But but I take it. I take your so, point that she's Joe is someone who would protect you at least. So even <laughs> <laughs> what? So, so what's like, he would protect you. He protects what? you from everyone. My God, good for you. Her. I got one less. I got one less point. What's the difference between killing someone and totally destroying their life so that they're miserable for the rest of their life? I mean, so you have to, you get to live, but you get to live in the worst possible way. I, I'm, I don't really see the difference. And I see Peach totally and completely capable of destroying someone yes. with her, with her money and making their life miserable and they're living destitute for the rest of their lives. So I, I agree with you that they're very similar. I think on the values um, scale, it's probably death and life worse than death, perhaps. Maybe. They are, they're, they're next she to each other. She takes it to damnation, right? Joe takes it to <laughs> yeah. death and she takes it to damnation. <laughs> yeah, it's, I think it depends what world you, perspective you're coming uh, at this from. Yeah. Where they, I think if, you, if, you have either been, if you've ever been subject to either through second hand or third hand, you'll have a viewpoint on which character is more dangerous. 
All right. Moving on to, sorry, any payoff? Yep. Yes. So uh, it's at the end of the middle build, they break up because uh, Joe re- realizes that Beck would be better off without him, although we realize that actually he doesn't truly believe this. They have a time, they have time apart. Joe finds a new girlfriend, Karen, and Joe and Beck eventually get back together because really for Joe, Beck is the one for him. He discovers that she had a relationship with her therapist, but he forgives her. Then Beck finds Joe's secret, the box of memorabilia from all his victims, and she confronts him and he has to lock her up in the basement. And then he's faced with a decision point after she shows him how she truly sees him, which is as a monster. He then has to decide, can I reason with her and risk my veil being taken away? Or do I have to sacrifice her once again for her own good and for my own, well, really for his good at that point? (laughs) (laughs) He kills her. But what's interesting is for him, in, in the way the story is narrated, it isn't over between them. Because he will continue to reference her in season two, but also in the end, he says how much he misses her and how, like, this is so twisted, he knows that she'd be proud that she's now a famous author because he's taken that manuscript that she wrote while imprisoned and had it published to frame someone else. And in the inevitable but surprising ending, we have, I mean, this is actually full of surprises, we have Candace, the ex who we presumed was dead, the skeleton in Joe's closet basically comes back from the dead and confronts him in the bookstore. What did you guys think? No, it's, I think you, got, yeah. you, you, you aced it. It's, a, it's an incredible ending. It, I think it's full of surprises. He takes it to a level I didn't expect and then Candace showing up again. Uh, and actually what's interesting is not just Candace showing up, but the moment before Candace shows up where it's like the tape is rewound yes. and a, a pretty yes. set of legs walks through and he says, oh, hello. <laughs> and it's exactly the same tone he took when Bex walked in. I also think that each episode pretty much was very, pretty good in dragging uh, the, not dragging, but pursuing, per, uh, convincing the uh, the viewers to go to the next episode. I mean, this, I thought this was done really well. The, each episode had a hook at the end, a cliffhanger kind of thing where you wanted to see what was going to happen next. Yeah. Absolutely. And I guess how we can dissect this a bit further is to look at question number two, which is what genre is it? And then question three will be how, how, does, how do the obligatory scenes and conventions, how do they look? So let's turn to genre. Randall, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, so the, it, it's a type of thriller for sure. It's got some elements of, of other things that, uh, that uh, Melanie and Prue will go into in a minute. But Thriller, Woman in Jeopardy, uh, you got a serial killer. Um, basically, the, the, what we're talking about with genre, once again, is what are the key scenes? What val- life value are they turning on? Are they turning on life and death? Are they turning on love and hate? Are they turning on uh, uh, morality? So in this case, I think they do a really good job of making this specifically a thriller with some, some other interests. And uh, because it, it does turn the, we just talked about the beginning hook, the middle build and the end payoff and there's death and there's life and there's potential death. So I think it's all in there. And, uh, and the, and the thrillers, the life value of, of life and death in the thriller are, are really good examples of that. Great. Yeah, totally. Absolutely agree with you there. And what's interesting is you flip that on the other side of thriller, we have a love story. 
from Joe's point of view, this is wholly a love story. This is a man who just wants love and thinks he's found it, but is so disappointed by people's behavior. He's so disappointed by how Beck has, you know, makes all the wrong decisions and his love turns to obsession and that justifies his behavior. From our point of view as a viewer, we see it as a thriller, but from his point of view, it's love. Mel, what, what do you right. reckon? Um, the genre that connects the love and the thriller genre is, is the internal genre. And for Joe, it's definitely the morality genre. And he starts at, at his lowest low when it comes to his internal genre. His selfishness, selfishness is masked as altruism, which is the negation of the negation of the morality genre. Because um, he thinks he's doing something for the one he loves, for Beck, when in truth he's just doing it for himself because he wants love. And he wants nothing to come in his way of getting that love. And he will be punished in the end. This is morality testing, punish, uh, or morality pun punishment subgenre, because he's going to lose the one he claimed to love. And this decision will set him up for a path to face damnation. Literally by meeting the ghost from the past, Candace, in the last episode. And that sets him up for wanting to redeem himself as trying to prove to himself that he's a good person. And we'll find out about that in the second season because then they're picking up on this. But mm -hmm. for now, for this, for this season, it's, he stays at the level of selfishness, mask as altruism. There's no um, development of character. I, I, yeah, I think that you're absolutely right. I think morality does, does link them together. I've seen uh, a fair bit of season two, and the thing that struck me was he, this, this uh, concept of shock to hibernating self and refusal to call to change is a pattern. It's a cycle that he goes through again and again. He wants to escape it every single time, but he can't, yes. and we'll find out later about Candace. He, he will have to face his demons, his ghosts. Okay, so next we come to the obligatory scenes of the global genre. So we will have, uh, alongside this podcast episode, a full list of the obligatory scenes and how they are met. But we'll just, um, let's quickly dip into them on this, on this podcast. Randall, do you want to kick us off with the obligatory scenes for Thriller? Yeah, I want to I talk about the inciting crime indicative of a master villain. So it's interesting. This is a thriller. So usually when you think of a thriller and an inciting crime, it's, it's someone dies and, or, or someone gets attacked or something like that. Um, and in this case, I, I, you, I, I think you can see it two ways, right? He, is, he may or may not have killed Candace. He thinks he kills Candace. So he's a killer. And we don't know if he has a history before that. So the fact that that started before this series even began could be the inciting crime, um, though we don't figure that out till later. Um, but also there's the, the stalking part. And I, and I think uh, you brought this up, Perul, if you want to elaborate on that. The stalking part is a fear of death yeah. or threat of death. Yeah, exactly. I think that sometimes what you can have in thriller and thrillers and, and sometimes in the action genre is the inciting incident in this case, the inciting crime can be a shadow. So it, it, it gives us enough of a hint as a reader or viewer to want to go on, but actually is the tip of the iceberg. And so here we have the moment he starts to stalk Beck is the moment that we realize that there's something wrong with this guy and that actually 
he is potentially committing or has committed, has the potential to commit a crime. And later on, we realize that he is capable of so much more. In season two, we'll realize about his past. Yeah, go ahead, Yeah, um, I just want to add with the inciting crime, just to come to a scene now that we can determine as obligatory scene. Um, It all depends how we see the story, because... Of course, we consider Joe to be the villain. Um, then the inciting crime could be the moment when he stays back from when she, after she fell down to the, on the subway rails and he saves her and then he keeps her phone. And that moment ultimately grants him the access to her most private life. And this sets up back as his next victim because now from now on, having her phone and the access, he will not um, let go of her again because he will... This will catapult him into finding out more about her and who he thinks who is manipulating her and also um, making him realize how Peach is manipulating her. So he knows then not only Benji is an obstacle or an antagonist, but also Peach. No, that's that's really that's really insightful, Mel. That's that's exactly it. I agree because up to that moment, what, what Perul is talking about, it's all passive, right? It's Facebook, it's Instagram, it's whatever he can see without it's see, watching her from outside her window. It's creepy, but it's perfectly legal. It's nothing's nothing's really. He hasn't stepped over anything. But when and even when he steals the phone, when he steals the phone, it becomes illegal. He stole the phone and it becomes a lot more personal. He gets access to stuff that she, you know, she knows can people can see her Facebook and Instagram. And that's why she posts stuff up there. And she doesn't have curtains on her window. That's just weird. You know, that maybe yeah. she I don't know if she's in. Don't that, blame her. Don't blame her for that, though. But, yeah, yes. right. but 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 when he steals the phone. <laughs> It becomes a lot yeah. more personal. He has access to stuff he's that she doesn't plan on him having access to. Yeah, so which is actually a convention of the thriller, right? Yeah. No, I just wanted to add because what I said in the beginning about what I think about the series, we always have to consider the villain is the hero hero of his own story. So for him, the inciting crime is something else than for the viewer who sees him as the villain. Exactly. So for him, exactly. I think it's when Peach is so manipulative that she's faking her own suicide attempt, then that's for him. Benji wasn't um, that much of an antagonist, but Peach is the one he really has to get out of the way because he knows with all his heart that she's not good for Beck. No, but I'm, I'm not sure with Benji. I think she, he also feels that he is yeah. harmful because he, you know, he talks about other women. He talks he's, about her. He's, more, he's using her for his, um, for his passion, for his pleasures. But... Yeah. Peach is taking it to another level. But but I don't think that's the inciting crime because it's happened so far into the series. So I, I find it hard to, to believe it's the inciting crime. I think the inciting crime really for Joe is the friends and boyfriends that she's choosing. That's kind of <laughs> that they are affecting her life, that they are a bad influence on her, that she is a pure person and they're not. I think that's Benji. So Benji's Benji's the first one. So right. Benji is the first crime, in so far as someone is doing something that is against what he believes to be good for her, because he believes his role is to save her. He thinks she's the victim from others, and he's the hero. But I agree with you that yeah. Peaches is, is a big part of that. As is, yeah, actually, it's, it's Benji and Peaches are the two main antagonists. I just wanted to mention one other obligatory scene that's that's hard to find. And I'm not sure I got it right. Is the praise of the of the villain scene um, really? If you're talking about the physical or the verbal praise, 
I think it's the end when Beck's trying to get, you know, get her, get him to release her. And she's just saying, no, I understand now you did it all for me. And, and he, she gives him all this praise sit, trying to get him to release her. So it's not really uh, a truthful praise. Um, but uh, but I, I, I go ahead, uh, Perul. I know you got another take on this. No, no, I think, sorry, what I was thinking was you're absolutely right. What that is showing us is what he's after. That's the praise that he wants. That's what he, how he sees himself. But when you think about the concept of what, what is what is speech and praise of them? It is it is a way to make us understand how terrifying and strong the the villain is, so that we we understand how difficult and impossible it might be to overcome him. And we talked to, at some point we're going to talk about point of view, and we'll see that actually because so every time Beck, for example, praises Joe in before this point, where she thinks of him as a nice guy or a really caring, understanding guy, the man who saved my life we can see that that really contrasts with the reality of who he is. And for me, it's that, it's that understanding that we have of him getting away with his actions. That, is, that serves as a speech and praise of the villain because it shows us his strength, that he's never caught. He always gets away. Yeah, but we also have to like find, find a specific scene that shows that. Um, so so I, think, yeah. I think that it can, I think it's, like I say, I think there, there are, um, there are lots of instances where he manages to get away. So say, for example, when maybe when Benji's killed and afterwards uh, Beck talks to Joe about how much she likes him and how much she cares about him and what a nice guy he is, that to me is the equivalent of speech and praise of the villain. Because, again, what's the purpose of speech and praise of the villain? It's just to show us their strength so that we can see how helpless the victim is. Yeah, and we certainly have that in there for when Joe talks about Peach. He's praising her as well for being his villain. Ah, okay, that's interesting. Oh, that's a really yeah. good point. Yeah, yeah. So yes. for him, there's different, yeah, different points of view of who. Yeah, are. we can see the entire thriller um, from his point of view as the hero and the others. Yeah. As, yeah. Cool. Yeah. So maybe we'll um, move to the love genre, which is the secondary, secondary, external genre, and it's interesting as we said as we were talking about earlier. For Joe, this is a love story. This is how he sees it. He sees it as he sees himself as this helpless, um, like romantic man who falls in love with these women who often disappoint him. In terms of, I'll choose one of the uh, obligatory scenes. Maybe it's the the proof of love because that's quite twisted and innovative. Um, it, he reminds me a little bit of Villanelle, who would do really strange things in order to prove her love she'd creep out eve the difference was that eve knew this for most of it whereas in this case it isn't until the end um there's one particular scene where when bex is in the cage and he says i'm doing this all for you and she says she's crying and she says even this and he's he's almost happy to say yes this this even this i'm doing for you but actually up until that point there've been a whole series of ways in which he's tried to prove his love for her, starting with uh, killing Benji. Yeah. So but that's right. That's, that's my take on love. It's uh, very, very twisted, but it's what gives us the narrative drive. But he also tried to take the good way out because um, he thought he can understand back because he, he listened to the tape when she was with the therapist and she told the therapist, okay, if you would really love me, then he would um, let me go. 
And he's doing that. He's doing exactly uh, what she wanted by breaking up with her. You're right. I think that is proof of love. But the the only thing that mars that slightly is then when you realize he says, oh, I don't don't even stalk her. Like I only look, I don't look at her Facebook no more than two to three times a day. (laughs) Yeah, I know. (laughs) And then when when her phone was, she, she, she does something, she goes offline and he says, no, I was only okay being separated from you if I knew exactly where you were. It's it's not it's never it's never it's never true proof of love. It's, it's a proof twisted. of love like for, for Beck when she thinks about it. Then this could have been a proof of love and it, from her yeah. perspective. Right. Yeah, but right. she doesn't know what's coming, so but, and, and what so proof of love is interesting because he will constantly talk about it throughout the series. He'll say, I do this for you. Yeah. Look at the things I do for you. Right. Expect- That's really good. Yeah. Shall we talk about morality? Yeah, um, because we also we already have touched on it. The hero's um, journey called to change, like because we've talked about it's a pattern. Like he's always falling back into um, who he is. And yeah, let's add to this after Benji's and Peach's death, um, Joe had put. Beck's phone, as you already said, he put it away not to stalk her anymore. He wanted to trust her. He wanted to, he he really wanted to change, but he just couldn't. So he went back to, even to Beck's therapist to find out if they're having an affair. So that's like another, well, you're not even in her computer and on her phone anymore, but you're (laughs) listening to the files of what you tell a therapist. And you know, like when you're really um, doing good therapy sessions, you're always telling the truth and the darkest truth about yourself. So that's like biggest step over the line he could do. Do we, do we feel sorry for Joe though when it comes to be true? I mm-hmm. empathize a lot with him. Or not, em- what is the right word? Sympathize? He was like a really likable a protagonist. Yeah, and then, he, and then he, he suspected that she was sleeping with a therapist and then she... She thought she told him he was crazy and needed to give her space, and then he and then he gave it to her after he listened to the tapes. Yeah, and then later on he finds out it was all true and that he wasn't crazy. Do we feel bad for him right before she finds all his memorabilia, his teeth and stuff? <laughs> I mean, I guess that's what you compare it to. So you feel no one wants to have a partner who cheats on them, but if I had to choose between a cheating, a cheating, cheating, a cheating <laughs> partner and a and a serial killer partner, I don't know. <laughs> Do you get lots of cereal with that? (laughs) So um, the other obligatory scene I'd like to mention is the protagonist actively sacrifices self and serve of an individual group or humanity or consciously chooses to remain selfish. Joe, he's getting um, back out of the cage, but he feels betrayed because um, she stabs him. Oh, another stabbing scene, like in Killing Eve. (laughs) Right, that's true. Yeah, and but he never considered uh, or empathized with Beck and that she saw him as a monster or that she saw a monster in him. And he doesn't let her get away with that. He kills her. And once again, he chose himself over her, over the one person he claimed to have loved. So I think that was really good to nail the morality genre in the end again. The morality is so, it's such an interesting mix into all of this. Yeah, um, definitely. Great. Okay, so next we turn to the conventions of the global genre. So question number four, what are the conventions of the global genre? Shall we pick 
uh, maybe one convention that we think is particularly yeah. interesting? Yeah, Randall and as I said, we have lots, all of them yeah. on in our show notes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All of this is downloadable. Randall, Thriller. So for Thriller, I think it's interesting, uh, the, the red herrings, because you can look at it one way and say, well, the red herrings are for the kind of Joe's discovery of Beck, her emails to her father when he reads it. He's like, who the hell's the captain? And, you know, the, um, the uh, you know, whether he should trust Beck. And there's all these little things along the way about, you know, she, she types in her phone stuff that he sees up to her friends and, and about whether, whether she wants to go out with him or whether she likes him or whether she's going out with Benji. And he, he just keeps finding all these things out. So maybe those are kind of red herrings for their relationship. But ultimately, Mel helped me to understand that the red herrings are for the people that are trying to discover that Joe is a bad guy, like Peach, like uh, the, the, uh, the investigator, the private investigator that Peach's family uh, hires. And so he ends up writing the suicide note, which is the red herring for the investigators and Peach's family. And he's always sending the text for Benji and saying, hey, I'm out here partying, things like that. So I thought that was an interesting kind of twist on the red herring part. What do you guys think? Yeah, yeah I think it's, exactly. it's fascinating exactly. that he's setting it up. I feel like we're really seeing everything. We see yeah. everything from the villain's perspective. Yeah, I think that's really great to have a thriller to really see what the villain is doing mm -hmm. and how he's like um, creating the puzzle for the ones who are going to investigate it which we are not going to see because the main story is him and his love story. It's own. Yeah. So, so the red, so the other thing I was thinking about with the red herrings is are the red herrings, the almost the cliffhangers, like the fact that, you know, at the end of one episode, he's, she's like, Oh, the captain, who's the captain. And then at the end of another episode, you know, he thought peaches peach was dead, but Oh, she only got, you know, hurt. And so are those red herrings at the end of each episode that, you know, kind of help the narrative drive so that the, the viewer watches again. Because that's what the Red Herring's purpose is, right? To kind of, there are mysteries that we're, we're the, we as the reader or viewer are trying to solve, and then we lead, they lead us down the wrong path. So there are two types of Red Herring's. There are Red Herring's for Joe and Red Herring's for us. Some of the Red Herring's that, I'm trying to think, so things like uh, the captain, we don't know who the captain is. Um, There's Joe. But the red, you need to show. I'd, I'd say the, the big ones that I that stand out to me are the ones where we are trying to understand the truth about Joe. So Candace, uh, realizing, thinking she's dead, and then she shows up. That's the, one of the big red herrings. Yeah, that's um, often creates a lot of mystery when you um, think of the narrative yeah. drive. Yeah. Yeah, and maybe also Peaches. Um, I'm sure, I feel like, I actually don't know what the answer is, but Peach's, we find out things on Peach's computer. Are they red herrings? Not really, because they're true. Sure. Yeah, I, I, the biggest one for me is Candace, and the rest is maybe Joe's red herrings for Joe. It antagonizes him. The red herrings right. make him anxious and make him do silly things. And and that, uh, when, and, we, and we know that, so it makes us anxious, because when he, when he yeah. does, the, yeah, that makes sense. You got uh, conventions for love story? 
Yeah, the, the, the only one that I'll pick out is um, the moral weight. And I remember Sean talking about love being an opportunity for redemption. And when I think about two of the previous series we've watched, like Killing Eve and The Witcher, no matter how much of a monster the character is, love is the one time when they reveal their vulnerable, authentic, almost beautiful self. But here we just don't really see that. I every time Joe, every time I think that Joe might be a little bit normal, nice, he does something else. And I I feel like love brings out the monster. So in a way, it proves to me that he is ultimately his authentic self is a monster. He is incapable of redeeming himself. Although he's trying, or even in this season, he's trying to do good things especially with Paco. Then his, his, his love or his understanding for this, for this little dude um, is helping him um, be there for this guy when no one else is. And that's a, a huge deed that he's doing. That's true. No, that is true. That is true. I think I just, if he hadn't killed yeah. Ron, I would, I'd, I'd feel a bit more kindly towards him, but he, Because he could have got him in prison. He could have. He could have. He's quite cunning. He could have done so many other I things. I don't know. Ron, it's hard to get Ron in prison since he's a uh, prison reform dude. You know, counselor for prisoners. Mm, maybe it's, you're right. It's almost. I don't think that would work very well. I mean, it'd be, it'd be, be difficult anyway. Yeah. Maybe think, you're right. I think killing him is the only way through that because he was never going to let the mother go. But right. I don't see it as redemption. I don't see it as him. No, um, it's not. No, it's no, not no, a no redemption for like re redeeming himself. No. But it evens the playing field a little bit because you're like, ah, you killed Benji, but then he killed Ron. So eh. kind of like uh, that. What was that that TV series that uh, with the that was from the person the perspective of the killer, Dexter? Oh yeah. He was killing for you know killing bad guys. Basically, he had to kill people because he was a yeah. he was a serial killer, but he serial killed other serial killers. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. I, with Dexter, it was different though because you actually did see, you saw that there were some people he would never hurt, whereas I don't believe that's true for Joe. Hmm. Anyway, maybe we should move on <laughs> to morality. Um, yeah, the one convention I'd like to talk about, or just quickly hint at, is I really like the spiritual mentor um, from Joe because it's his, um, the man who took him in after he, I don't know what happened, after he didn't have his mom anymore. And he turns out, um, the one who owned the bookstore earlier, that he used to be an ex-Soviet prison guard and he used to lock Joe into this um, glass cage. So I really thought that's, because he's taking, um, what he's learned and what he's doing to people, locking in, them in there, he thinks because it helped him to become the yeah. person he is, That it's yeah. going to help them as well. So um, I really like this um, innovation of the mentor to make him yeah. <laughs> right Soviet prison guard. <laughs> right, you're totally right. And that scene where he takes Beck to see him, and it's supposed to show us how wonderful and generous. You know, he's taking him to see an old man. What Beck doesn't know is that old man is is quite twisted. Forgave him for the first crime he ever committed. Okay, so the next one, point of view. So you is one of those few TV series that is told by using the first-person narrative with access to the thoughts of the main protagonist. So that, I thought this was a 
pretty well because we don't have that often. And they also create the narrative drive of dramatic irony by including a couple of scenes that are without him present, although we can never be too sure if he's not watching. Right. So I thought this was done very, very well. And I don't know what you think, um, but when they switched the point of view suddenly after they um, slept together here, him and back, and it was only lasted only those eight seconds, then as soon as we heard um, Beck's thought, I actually thought she was talking to him because I was not used to this POV yeah. change. It was very this jarring. This was like totally um, unnecessary. Mm-hmm. I didn't like okay. that at all. So that's like one, if you agree, one flaw they could have avoided. Mm-hmm. Because it maybe it was for like for some comedic relief to make her comment on only eight seconds, but... Um, I think the one thing that that did is as soon as it switched to her point of view, the tension evaporated because you're no longer in the mind of a serial killer. The story, if they'd done it for much longer, it would have really uh, been quite bad for the series. But as it was, they switched back to him. Yeah, but they totally didn't need it. It was Joe's POV was all we needed because we already have had those three genres in there and it was totally enough. Peru, you want to go on with the objects of desire? Yeah, so the objects of desire, this is what the character wants, knows they want, and then there's what they need, which they probably don't know quite so much. So Joe, he wants love. He thinks he wants love, wholesome, strong love that lasts forever. Quite early on when he meets Beck, he talks about They see a couple in a bar and he says, that'll be us in 30 years. Mm. It's like conjuring up this image of this perfect, romantic, idealistic love. But actually, he can't handle real love. Uh, When Karen, when he gets together with Karen, she's two together and he seems quite bored of her. He needs excitement. What do you guys think? Anything to add? I think you got it. I mean, that's, uh, I agree. Yeah. And I mean, Karen's just a super nice person and, treats him like a king, you know, and he, he didn't want that. He wants someone, right. he wants someone that needs him. Karen doesn't need him. Uh, right. and, she, and, yeah. and, and, and when, when, when he met her in the hallway, she was very independent. And, uh, and when he broke up, they, they hooked up and then they started dating, but she doesn't really need him. And she kind of takes care of him, but that's not the kind of person he is. He wants to take care of someone else. He wants someone to be dependent on him. Right. Right. Cause he makes him feel strong and special. Makes him feel wanted. Yeah, great. Okay, so we come to question number seven, which is what is the controlling idea? Well, for the controlling idea, we have to combine the two main external genres, which we have as thriller and the love story. And I'm a, I'm myself a fan, a big fan of combining two external genres with each other in a way that they influence one another and drive the main story forward in a way that you can't do without the other one. So here we have a strong obsession love story that influences the progression of the thriller and vice versa. The overprotectiveness of the protagonist when it comes to the ones he loves allows his psychopathic, no, psychopathic <laughs> tendencies <laughs> to take shape. Yeah, it's a new word I've invented. Psychopathic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and when we talk about an obsession love story, um, there's a great quote from the story with that I'd like to um, like Parul could you read it because I think that nails um, yeah, sure. very good for the viewer what is an obsession love story 
So in the obsession love story, one of the lovers has such a shallow but intoxicating passion for the other that the life-death value comes into play. Obsession love stories are cautionary. They don't progress beyond the desire value and usually end in tragedy. Yeah, so it's a great summary of what we witness um, in season one of you. And where yeah, else did we see it? In, in, in Killing Eve. Killing Eve, yeah. yes. Yeah, and his intoxicating obsession with Beck is the reason for her death and the reason for so many other deaths as well. Yeah. So when we think about um, the controlling idea, we have to take those two main external genres into account and also consider the internal genre that connects the external ones with each other. So yeah. we have a thriller, love story, as well as Joe's morality, punitive story. And so we could say for the controlling idea, when a protagonist with ambition and sophistication who does anything for the one he loves takes advantage of opportunities and portrays his moral compass. He victimizes innocent people and receives due consequences by losing the one person he wanted to protect. I don't think so, he receives the consequences, though. I mean, he does He does kind of obsess over her, but when she's dead, he's just like, oh, you know, she got her book published and, you know, yeah, sorry it didn't work out. He kind of moves I on think pretty quickly. It spills over into season two. We see it a little bit as, yeah. as he, because he has to flee town and he, he's forever haunted by. Oh, we add the ghost from the past because um, if you take Candace into account who shows up, um, then she's the ghost from the past coming to haunt him. And if he would have been um, taking the right moral path and admitting his crimes to what he did to Candace, um, maybe not even having that happen to what happened to Benji or getting obsessed with Beck, then he could have avoided everything. But now she's gone and she's going to be his wrath. Like she's going to make his life a living hell. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I so think it's a really good idea. Yeah. But we see that even more in season two. So it's a great cliffhanger for season two. Yeah. So great. Randy, did the series match the trailer? Yeah, yeah. I, we got we got an obsessive love story. We got so super obsessive that he's killing for. I think uh, the trailer really delivered, and uh, I thought the series would you know was really good. It was really uh, um, it, it made me want to watch the, each successive episode. I, I, I liked it a lot, and and uh, and I thought the trailer was perfect. Yeah, I agree absolutely. It promised to be a thriller with an obsession love story which was clearly delivered and the strong morality internal genre, that was the cherry on top, I think. And it really, like when we finished watching this um, epi uh, season, we immediately started watching a second one. Because <laughs> I did, I yeah, just I did wanted too. to I know how it goes yeah. on. And that's like the best, um, best compliment for a TV series. Yeah. If you can't <laughs> wait to watch the next one. So Parul, what do you think? I think, uh, I went back and had a look at the trailer just to remind myself of what they'd promised. And I was just thinking, God, they really actually did deliver. Because the three things you get from that trailer, you get the tension of a serial potential uh, psychopath, but you also have humor and subversion. Yeah. And, and that's carried out. And again, it reminds me of Killing Eve, just the, the strength of narrative drive. You can't stop watching. Mm -hmm. And you sort of have so many different layers at which the story is satisfied. So what were your favorite scenes, Randy? Uh, you know, in the very beginning, it was 
the stalking was like, you know, Hey, I'm looking at Facebook. I'm looking at Instagram. She doesn't block it from anybody. It's open. I'm watching through the window. And then he's in her apartment and he's going through her stuff, you know, and he steals her underwear. I think the first time and hides it in his box and stuff. And I, and you're you're just like, wow, that was pretty freaking easy. (laughs) And so, but he, you know, he, it was, it was well done. I thought it made, made some sense, but it was very easy for him to do all that. And that was one of the things I, I thought was interesting. I also like it when Benji, lost it in the cage and ripped all the books up <laughs> and yeah. I was like, because he doesn't read books, I guess. Um, but, uh, it's like anyway. the one way to piss off Joe is to rip up <laughs> exactly. precious books. His, his, his precious books that are in the cage because they're so precious. What about you, Mel? <laughs> um, I love the scene when he was in Peach's house because he was moving around so calmly as if he wasn't scared at all to get caught. Because I just like, when I imagine myself being in a house where I didn't want to be discovered, I would like look for the fastest way out that no one notices me. But he stays in there and walks around and it was like really creepy and uh, he did a good job doing it. (laughs) (laughs) Except for peeing in the glass. Oh, (laughs) yeah. 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 So probably what you think. I really like the humor in it. And in the first episode, there are a couple of really smart, cynical comments he makes where he he sees this good-looking girl walk through the bookshop. He's trying to guess what she reads. And he says this line, she's too sun-kissed to be a Stephen King fan. (laughs) And then he takes the piss out of a customer who buys, um, I think he buys Salinger as well as Dan Brown. And he talks about this customer who's going to go home and eat Cheetos watch porn on his iPhone and then have a Dan Brown chaser. <laughs> it's just so wonderfully insulting. It just reveals his, his humor and his, his intelligence. That's what you need for like a strong morality genre. This, yeah. Um, that the guy is adds, really sophisticated. and Right. Yeah, but it, going back to Killing Eve, what we had there was that the darkness was often, you know, it was lightened with this ridiculous humor. I didn't think yeah. it's, it's quite as funny as Killing Eve, but it's still there. A little bit of humor. Speaking of Killing Eve, since we talk about it in every episode, because <laughs> we're obsessed with it, since uh, the season three comes out on the 12th of April, that's going to be our next uh, series that we're going we're gonna to review. And we're going to review it as it comes out. So every week we're going to watch it. And then we're going to release a, uh, a short um, five commandments, you know, what we like, dislike, what the, were the good conventions, obligatory scenes in that, in that episode. And then after the whole series is over, probably in May or yeah, May or May or June, then we'll do a uh, full scap and a six core as a finale. So tune in for that 12th of April, start watching uh, Killing Eve with us and we'll start, we'll start, we'll start discussing it. You guys got anything else before we wrap up? No, that's it. Perfect. Okay. Thanks for joining us. We hope that you've had a, have a better understanding of the five commandments of storytelling and the six core questions that every editor asks. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and review and tell your writer and editor friends about us. For more information, videos, and articles on the story grid, go to storygrid.com or you can join us on sgshowrunners.com, our website, where you can see our notes as well. And if you want to connect with one of the editors directly, links to our web pages are also in the show notes. 
that's it. Thanks for joining us.